Ooh, what a nuanced way to use eggplant. I don't know. You're listening to a podcast created by the Jacksway Collective. We're a group of friends who like to talk about philosophy, fiction, and whatever else is on our minds. Thank you very much for listening. Now let's get to the show. Hey everyone, welcome back to episode 18 of the Jacksway Collective. I'm here today with Yana, Brendan, and Ollie. Today we're going to be discussing The Death of the Author. That's an essay by Roland Barthes. Yeah, so if you guys have any thoughts or questions, um, definitely feel free to reach out to us. You can reach us at jacksway.collective at gmail.com. Rate us on iTunes. Rate us on Spotify. Can you do that? I don't know. Research if you can rate us on Spotify. Or just listen. You know what? Just just send us something. You know, email, Instagram, DM. We don't have Instagram. Ooh, Facebook. Message us on Facebook. Right. P.O. Box. Mm -hmm. We've got options. We're going back. <laughs> We're going back to uh, to the well of listener emails for this one, just to highly encourage our audience to continue to reach out to us. But Ted, uh, Ted sent us another email, and I figured a good way for us to start the podcast is just to uh, just to read it. And then we'll do you think that people are going to start to think that Ted doesn't exist, and he's just like this placeholder name we use, this fan we just <laughs> made up? Like, oh, our biggest fan, Ted, sent in this email it's just like spartacus <laughs> we're all ted we'll have him re- record his voice or something instead of sending an email next time yeah right Ooh, okay, okay. yeah good call but maybe they won't even believe that either <laughs> ted we want video proof of your question asking on your next uh your next email send us a dropbox file or we'll have a live chat we'll figure it out hey it's ted again <laughs> still listening still having fun I really liked Brennan's TalkBox special. I'm always interested in where a piece of art comes from and why a person decides to tell a particular story. That episode scratched that itch. You folks have some English and philosophy backgrounds, and I'd like to hear your varied perspectives on an essay that sort of explores the opposite of what the TalkBox was about, the death of the author. Keep having fun, and I'll keep listening. Ted. Have we stopped having fun yet? Of course not. And Ted's still listening. I hope you're out there, Ted. <laughs> to all the Ted's out there. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, it's hard to say. Like, we definitely have an English background. As far as a philosophy background, it's quite, quite modest. Yeah, right. You just pulled out your philosophy Bible. <laughs> yeah, and I actually felt the table give way a little bit. Like the legs kicked out a tiny bit. That's how heavy it was. The thing is a tome. Um, and we actually have two of them as well. Oliver as well. Um, yeah, it was actually nice to nice to see Ted um, suggest something that Oliver and I have many memories of back in our back in our college days. Um, so we pulled out the old critical theory book and um, dug into some some rolling bars, which you don't often do on a Saturday uh, Saturday morning or afternoon. I think one of the unique things about this essay is you can you can read it or not and still have very strong opinions about the subject matter as well. And so hopefully we have some good discussions there. But basically, I think that this is a this is an essay that's really talking about literary criticism and how we how we interpret and experience works of art. When you are engaged in this kind of relationship of interpreting someone else's art, we're often looking to the actual creator of that piece of work as a means for understanding it. And the closer we get to understanding the intentions or um, the motivations of the creator of the art, 
there's this assumption that that's gotten us closer and given us a better interpretation of that work. And so this goes back to the romantics and it was their interpretation that the quality of the work is actually measured in how well it's able to take the internal state of an author and then express it in a work of art. And the closer that these two things map onto each other, the more successful, quote unquote, the work would be. And so take a, a great poet who experiences um, an unbelievable feat of nature and then they want to take that personal subjective experience and put it into words or into a poem, we would then judge that work on their ability to do so. And so I think what Barthes is asking us to do is question whether or not this is the only way we should be interpreting these forms of art, or if there are other ways um, where we should not even care about the author or their intentions or what they intended at all when, when judging a work. So basically what you're saying is that his main argument is that we can never really know what a writer or the artist is intending or his intentions are. So therefore we can't make any assumptions based on what the artist is saying or doing. We have to make our own assumptions. Yeah. And I think that he would even go beyond that and say like, even if we did know what their intention was when writing that novel or writing that poem, it wouldn't matter. And we shouldn't even look to that as a measure of quality. So like, how do we feel about this? Just, I think like everyone can have an opinion on something like this to give a real world kind of example. I'm the kind of person that if I'm going to watch a TV show or a trilogy of movies, like I'm going to start from the beginning and I'm going to watch it the whole way through. And I don't want any sort of information missed. Whereas some people are just willing to hop into like, you know, episode two of season three and just kind of go from there. Psychos. Right. <laughs> and so like, where are we at on this spectrum of, because for me, that's all about how the director of the TV show wants me to experience it. It's all about their intent uh, in terms of my experience. So I want to take that into account. And I, that's important to me. Yeah, I don't know if it's because the essay is so old. Like, when was it written? Like, in the 60s at some point? Mm, probably, I think. Like, kind of before the age of information. Like, now we have so much information that, I don't know, a lot of what I was reading from Bart, it's like, this is not, like, this argument doesn't really stand up anymore, kind of. Okay, so like you said, you want to know everything from start to finish. And I think even in like the notes, you gave an example about how you wouldn't have liked Frankenstein as much if you didn't have that background on Mary Shelley. Mm -hmm. And I point to like understanding Mary Shelley's life and how it informed Frankenstein the work as like part of my interpretation and like that's adding quality and that's adding meaning to me, knowing about Mary Shelley and then that being reflected in Frankenstein. Exactly. So like now, even more modern works, there's so much more information available, even negative information. So how does that then inform how you think of a piece of art? Like, especially in light of like all the Me Too stuff and, you know, R. Kelly, mm -hmm. Michael Jackson. That's really interesting. I never would have thought of that that way. I want to hear what Brennan and Oliver think about that. But isn't that different, though? Because with this essay, he's talking about writing, whereas with actors, it's like a performance artists think about any kind of artist like you don't necessarily have to be like an actor but you know a writer Hemingway yeah Hemingway Bukowski mm -hmm. anyone that you know is like an abusive shitty piece of shit like how does then that inform how you're reading or interpreting that piece of work I found it particularly interesting the fact that a lot of the times the artists who are the most introspective and typically have like the strongest revelations about human nature. I feel like those are the people who are like most at odds with themselves. 
a lot of artists are like the struggling types who have that cognitive dissonance of um, who they are, who they want to be. And um, they're the ones that typically have the most profound observations on just, yeah, human nature. So there's almost like this inherent tie of like less ideal characters being the strongest artists of our generation. And you have to accept that the characters who are most inclined to make the great art are going to have the characteristics that might make them unideal characters. So I think like this is a, this is an essay about interpretation because mm-hmm. like you say, Brendan, it seems to me almost inescapable that the type of person that the creator is, is inevitably going to influence the work that they create. That's, you can't escape that part of it. I think what the essay is trying to ask is like, should that be our primary focus as interpreters or as critics or as you know consumers of that? Should we, you know, seek to understand Stanley Kubrick's inner psyche and his relationship with the people he's filming with and like why he was such a dick and look for connections between him as an individual and then his actual films? Or should we instead keep our interpretations of Dr. Strangelove or any other film that he's made within the text? And it's tough for me to to say that we should. I think that it only offers an additional insight when we know about the individual. It's interesting that you mention Kubrick as well, because like The Shining is one of those pinnacles of movie storytelling where there's so much ambiguity and there's so many different like uh, cross wires for interpretation that they actually have a whole documentary about people's interpretations of the film. Oh, I love that documentary. Room 237, like highly, highly recommend it. Uh, and that's a, it's a great piece to watch in conjunction with the piece that we're discussing today because it's all how different people choose to take it and choose to make symbols out of certain things, um, whether they're deliberate or not. Going back to that notion of uh, authorial intent, they're, like these people are making arguments of things as being deliberate when really we don't even know how deliberate those things may have actually been. And Kubrick's a very interesting uh, is a very interesting artist to discuss within this because of how deliberate he's been described as being in a lot of his projects. Like he's one of those people where uh, he obsesses over the minor details. So there's actually evidence to actually believe there's deliberate intent to a lot of the things that happen in the background, and it's not just like some grand inference. One of the things that Barr says is like how actually this is a very modern conception where we think of the artist or the author, individual creative genius who has this incredibly high intent. I believe he chalked this up to like some sort of medieval era, but like being strengthened during the more like modern industrial capitalist um, era where we, we really do think about the individual as primary in the creation of art. Stanley Kubrick can be as intentful as he wants, but like you said, there's so many different interpretations of a work. And so what happens when you as a viewer you don't interpret his film in the same way that he was so careful for you to experience it. What do you do then? Well, isn't that what Bart wants? Looking beyond just what um, the author intends and actually adding value to your interpretation. And I think that might be what Bart is trying to, to get us to look at. In my mind, it's almost like, uh, it's almost analogous to the perception of destiny where there's so much random occurrences just by the sheer number of occurrences that happen that there's going to be these things where things align, events align, outcomes align, and it's easy to perceive it as being something that we put under this guise of destiny, just as we can put certain things that happen or occur in art under this guise of intent. But 
we can't really prove intent until the person themselves even says that they did. But even then that intent is just like such a vague notion. How do you really truly prove intent? It could be post hoc. Like, oh, of course I intended that. Yeah. Right? <laughs> you have no idea at the time, right? It I planned it all. Of like horoscopes. Like it's absolutely in the power of the reader. Like they mm. look at it and like, wow, that is so true and like so applicable to me in my circumstance because they kind of want to map onto anything or like find meaning in something. Whereas whoever is writing the horoscope is like, well, this is meant for, I don't know, like 20,000 people. So hopefully, <laughs> hopefully a few of them like hit on something in there. I actually think like the ambiguity of the death of the author and like this, how meaning can just be so flexible and float around. I think that's awesome. Beautiful almost in a way that we can have, we can all have a different experience with a piece of art or writing. To, to add on to your point, Oliver, he's saying we should embrace that. The, the locus of meaning is not in the individual creator, but like you say, in every other person's interpretation of it as well. There is just as much, if not more meaning in that individual relationship than there is um, whatever the actual author intended when he wrote the book or directed the film. And so one interesting thing that you mentioned, Oliver, was like, if you, if you kind of take on what you say, how do you feel when you are the individual creator or you are the poet or you are the writer or you are the filmmaker? Would that change your relationship with your own art? Would that make you... It's a good question, actually. Because <laughs> it seems it, great for us as readers. Yeah. The one actually making something? Mm-hmm. I guess it depends on how people interpret it. Um, <laughs> it is a little bit freeing, though. But you do run the risk of getting into that hot water, obviously. It's one of the recent creative productions that you made. You know, you're presenting it to other people. You intend for it to be, you know, received in a certain way. Um, you do copywriting. So, like, obviously, writing is a huge part of your, your day-to-day, and it's all about portraying a message for you. At least it, it seems to me, like, in your job, you would certainly hope that people are yeah. taking what you say as the, <laughs> the important locus of meaning and, like, the, the, that's where the... <laughs> but that's, not really, that's not really art, though. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like copywriting is like what Bart wants. You need You're to literally just like a faceless person typing out this stuff. No one like reads your copy and was like, wow, who who wrote this? Like, <laughs> I want to know more about them. Ooh, Ollie, like, where did you grow up? So you're right. It's not exactly the same thing. You can really see like Oliver's like Toronto roots come through in his uh, in his headline writing. You can see you can see his damaged psyche in that headline. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, Not the damaged psyche part. That's sad. <laughs> but awesome. So what, okay, well, like it's not like it, it's not as if we have an all created piece of art as well. Would you do you feel as if yeah you, you a a create it and you always want it to be received well, <laughs> right? And so does this, does this now hinder your ability? Like because maybe previously as an artist you're like, well, you just didn't you didn't understand what I was trying to portray you didn't you didn't understand my intention or you didn't interpret it in the way that I interpreted it when I wrote it so like of course you're you're not getting it quote unquote but according to this like the reader is getting it just as much as the the writer is getting it mm-hmm. right and so it becomes this kind of problem where now all of a sudden you don't have any gold standard to point to for a good or bad interpretation if it's not coming from the author themselves or the creator themselves is the gold standard and it could be, you know, different for every single person who interprets it. Then you just have this, this infinite number of interpretations. What do we do with that? Is there a different metric we point to? 
then that's where I think, again, to circle back, it comes in to like knowing information about the author that helps ground you and gives you that context for interpretation. Well, well at the, on the flip side, why do we need to have this solid interpretation when it comes to writing and art? What's the point? Why do we need this certainty? I think we just like to find meaning in things. And again, like I know this argument has been made probably a thousand times in relation to this paper, but like, why would Bart even assign his name to this like as the author like why not just submit this work anonymously because now like people who read this essay are gonna like look and see what his philosophy is what his background is mm -hmm. of course like, he's any like responding kind of... to the structuralist like yeah. <laughs> um, you need that context and so this is one of the interesting things that actually when i talked to tina about this she made a key distinction that i think is now you're hitting on it's so important and that's actually the difference between context and intent. What she says, or what she said was, it does not matter. You are never going to be able to remove the work of art from the context it has been birthed in. Those two are inseparable and they come hand in hand. And that is, the work is both the work itself and the context it was birthed in. That's one thing. Totally separate from that is the intention of the creator. And so why you're talking all about context and it's like I was I fell into the same trap where you kind of flip back and forth between talking about intent and context but when you make this distinction no the context is the work the context and the creator of when we try to understand that and we try to understand the culture that a person was in or like um you know like why it is that something like the bible is so great because of the context that it was in like context is inseparable but intent we can kind of throw that out the window um because like you say, Brendan, we can put intent on anything. We can say, of course we intended that, or of course we didn't intend that. You know, We can change our minds after the fact and make claims about intention, even though we might not have even had it at the time, but we cannot change the context. Context is gonna be there regardless. With that, it becomes very important for me to understand, you know, when, you know, Friedrich Nietzsche is writing his philosophy, I wanna know like it adds value to me knowing the time and the century he was born in, um, who he's responding to, what his living situation is. That all remains meaningful, good information for me as an interpreter that adds value. But what doesn't add any value is what Friedrich Nietzsche intended for me to believe. So when you make this distinction, I can take on and use the context as a way to illuminate my interpretation while simultaneously not giving a fuck about his intentions. And I think that's very, very important. That, I don't know, that to me is a, a great response to Barthes because you just have to choose what to focus on. Same with Stanley Kubrick. Everything about, you know, his film sets, who, what filmmaking was like in the 1960s, um, you know, the context of Hollywood at the time, that all remains important information um, and can only add value to my interpretation of Dr. Strangelove. But what Stanley Kubrick, the man, intended for me to interpret when I watch his film, it doesn't matter to me anymore. I feel like intent also has different levels of importance in the perception of a piece of art, depending on the medium that it is a part of as well. Because we've been discussing like movies and authors, but um, you raised a really good, uh, like a, a point in your notes about a chef. And when a chef is plating a dish, they may have like an ideal pairing or like an ideal combination and everything on that plate, there is a level of intent because the intent is in how the ways interact. 
So why is it that we have different mediums that where intent seems to have different levels of value and we hold that intent at different levels of respect in the way that we consume it? I think about like the way that I consume music and I think music exists a lot more in uh, in that void where intent is not a really high value part of what it is. If I listen to something, especially if it's something without lyrics, intent means absolutely nothing to me. And to an extent, sometimes even context means nothing to me. But then the more you move away from an abstract medium to more of a concrete medium, that's when it feels like intent plays more of a necessary purpose and something that we should be observing because there's more of a, like a palpable way that the different intricacies of what's being used interact with each other, whether it be through something that goes through the senses. Uh, I think that's probably the most likely, um, like the best example. Um, something that goes through the senses has more of a level of importance placed on intent because there's, there's that very deliberate nature of multiple factors um, uh, playing into each other and corresponding. Yeah, that, that makes sense though, because it's a, it's a direct experience, right? Like for instance, with food, you're not necessarily trying to interpret the meaning of the food. You're just but experiencing why? the taste. Why not interpret the meaning of the food? Yeah. Because we're hungry, soulless beasts. <laughs> or even like interior design or architecture, mm-hmm. the, like the way people move through a space. So here's a question for you, Brendan. The chef tells you that, you know, you should eat this meal in a dark room with this type of wine with like, you know, a pinch of salt on top of it. And like you take that extremely seriously and you mm-hmm. want to experience that. And so why is that? And I'm thinking like, okay, like why, why, why? I think it's Let because me, it plays more into the objective. It plays more into the objective. Okay. Tell me what you think of this. What about the discrepancy of knowledge and skill between the eater and the chef? Is that greater than the fiction reader and the fiction writer? Because the chef has so much more talent and expertise and knowledge than me when it comes to cooking food and the best way to eat it. I'm more willing to give over that that intent entirely to him because I fully trust him and his level of knowledge, his expertise. Whereas I feel like I know how to interpret a, a, a book, right? I know how to read something and analyze it to a certain extent. So that skill discrepancy is less polarized. Do you think that plays any role? I don't know if it's that or if it's just the fact that the mediums play within different levels of certainty. Like you look at what a chef works with. A chef will use a strawberry because it has a certain flavor. Whereas if a writer were to use something like a location, a location is something that's going to have vastly different meanings based off of the way that people have experienced it. Like, um, uh, take a neighborhood in Vancouver, for example, like the East side, there are some people who still look down and like, it's the East side. And then there are some people who really, they have such a fond perception of it because it's much more in line with their characteristics and they have different memories. So if you were to write a story or write a song and have some mentioning of that, it will bring out different feelings for the different audience members. You're dealing with more preconceptions. Mm-hmm. So whereas like the flavor of a strawberry might evoke different feelings, the mentioning of a location has less of that certain characteristic to it, less of that concrete characteristic. So there's more of that ambiguity to play within. But won't it just vary from person to person? Like in your example, you said 
you feel comfortable like reading and interpreting texts. Well, some people have like really refined palates and like they might not be a chef themselves, but they're maybe a food critic or they're able to tell, you know, ooh, I, I know what the chef did here. I really like it. Like, ooh, what a nuanced way to use eggplant. <laughs> I don't know. So like as the skill discrepancy lessens, you're less willing to completely give the intent to the creator. Not necessarily. You might even be able to appreciate it more, like the intention more as a skill level. Yeah, that's deepens. actually very true. That's very true. You have a higher appreciation because yeah. you have more knowledge and you know what they're doing more. Mm-hmm. True. Really interesting too. Do you feel like the chef example is getting to, I don't even know how to say this, like something more truthful, like a chef. Oh yeah. The chef has a more concrete, truthful account of the best way to get the taste of a strawberry to come out of the strawberry by pairing it with certain foods or flavors or whatever. Whereas like something more ethereal, like a novel or like the arrangement of words in a poem, like it's less directed towards like firm quote unquote objective truth. Like does that? Yeah. And I think that's one of the ways that this paper shows its age is the way that it discusses about discusses art and the relationship of the artist and the art is very much antiquated Uh, And a lot of the ways that we've changed and developed, whether it be through things like social media, uh, shout out to our last episode, (laughs) 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 through things like that, we have a much more direct relationship with the artist, which I think influences the art in a lot more ways, one of which is that awareness of intent, whether that shifts the importance of intent, I think is a different discussion, but we are certainly more aware of the intent and it has much more of an effect on our interpretation of how things are. So whether it be a conscious decision of being aware of that intent or whether it's totally subconscious where it just, we are made aware of it through whatever avenues, it definitely has more of an influence and impact on our perception and experience of things. So I often feel strongly about authorial intent on behalf of the author. To give an example, there is a famous television show where they decide to air it out of order, week by week. The order of the show, the canon order, happened 12th chronologically, happened in the first episode, and then they go to like the fourth episode. And so now the like community of people who have watched the TV show, they feel strongly about how people who are new to the show experience it for the first time. Some people feel very strongly, myself included, of watching it out of order in the same way that it aired on TV, in the same way that us who originally watched it experienced it. And so I'm feeling that intent on behalf of the creator of the show, because that's how he wanted it. But then there's this other camp of like, no, 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 like watch them in chronological order. So watch episode seven first, and then go to episode 12, and then episode one. and then, So you can get just the proper chronology, and they feel very strongly about going in the opposite direction of the author's intent. Is there anything that you feel so strongly about that you want, you feel this authorial intent on behalf of the author, like you have to experience it this way? Like I don't know. I'm a, pretty, I'm a pretty big rule follower, so yeah. I'm happy to be told like this is the order in which you should watch or yeah, do whatever. So I happily follow those rules. Yeah. If it's a show I don't care about, like yeah, fuck it, like go in on season three, I don't care. It depends on like how, well again, this is a matter of perception, but a sitcom like Friends, like, it doesn't really matter. Like, you can just pick up any episode and enjoy it. But, you know, an hour-long drama, like, no, no, you're going to want to start from episode one. 
Yeah, I'm with you. I'm 100% One thing I can stand though is like authors trying to like retroactively, I don't know, put intention mm. on their work that wasn't originally there. Ugh, this is like almost blasphemous and I feel really bad saying it. But <laughs> JK Rowling has been getting dragged on Twitter because now she's trying to make Harry Potter so woke, like, oh, Dumbledore was gay and this person is asexual and it's like, well, no, like that didn't happen in canon. It's just like all these years later that you're like retroactively trying to go back and make it more 2019, I guess. It's probably, it was probably like her publicist or something. Yeah, probably. But also. So like post hoc claiming. Of- yeah. <laughs> we need to keep this Harry Potter alive. <laughs> <laughs> do we do that in our daily lives? Make Harry Potter gay? <laughs> I mean, in your fanfiction, maybe. Fanfic. Um, well, most of my fanfic is hetero, but there's some gay fanfic, I guess. Gotta be experimental, right? Yeah. That's what fanfic's all about. That's what it's all about. <laughs> um, yeah, do we walk around like this all the time? It doesn't have anything to do with art, but we're, like, we're post hoc saying, like, of course I meant to do that, or, you know, of course I intended that, or, yeah, like, you know, it turned out exactly as I wanted it to. Um, I feel like that's also a very human reaction to have. Yeah, mm-hmm. I don't know. I just like delete anything from the past so it doesn't come yeah. back to haunt me. <laughs> Which maybe in 10 years this podcast will do. Oh. <laughs> we haven't said anything too incriminating yet, so I think we're okay. Well, yeah. only episode 18. That's why I still love going to theaters to watch movies. Cause yeah, because you're giving it your attention. full attention. Yeah. Or there's just like, the, it's like a sanctuary, right? And you step yeah. into the theater. I really want to see Jordan Peele's new movie. Do we all see Get Out? Yeah. Yep. That was good. That was wild. I used to have a YouTube video essay online about that. You did? Why are you whispering about that? <laughs> I used to have a YouTube video essay about Get Out. Now for a quick commercial break. Uh, this is brought to you by Yana's YouTube channel. Oh man, so so. Wait, so it's not on there anymore? Oh no, that's that's wiped off the face of YouTube. Oh. Um, Damn. I just searched YouTube with your name, and the only thing that came up was pretty good at drinking beer. Good. <laughs> Is that one of your high school videos? Great deep cut. <laughs> what, what was your intention with that video, Yana? Here's, turn this into an interesting discussion. If you were looking back on my body of work in a hundred years, which will be relatively non-existent, but then you look at that video that we just pulled up, immediately as the interpreter, you're going to be making assumptions about me, the individual, based on that piece of content you were just exposed to. And you'll be like, oh, like he was like that. That's how Jan Ellard was. And that's how it informs his writing and body of work. Yet, as you guys know, I'm incredibly different now. And so when we look back at historical figures, our access to what their lives were like were just as, if not way more limited than finding some deep cut YouTube video. So we're making all these assumptions on an extremely small, random sample of one person's little tiny snippet of their life. And we're making so many conclusions and assumptions on that. So this is if, Yana's PR speech. <laughs> <I'm just laughs> he's covering <laughs> you. 
So if Barth is right about anything, it's that we are engaging in this act of trying to connect author and their creation to their creation itself. But the evidence for what the author is and their motivations and what they were like is random. It's tiny. We have no idea of whether or not it's legitimate or whether or not it actually represents who they were at the time. It's so minor, especially when you're dealing with things hundreds and hundreds of years ago. The evidence is not there. So not don't not make this connection because it's not it shouldn't be the gold standard of interpretation. Don't do it because you have no reason to believe that there's going to be any truth in it at all or it's going to provide any accurate, truthful insight. That was impassioned. I have some embarrassing videos of myself too on there, on YouTube. Yeah, it's fine. Like you got to age yourself a little bit, you know, like show some growth. Luckily, my name is common enough that I don't think people would be able to unearth anything. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe when you're a great author one day, they mistake their historical research for the, the other Sarah Johnson. The murderess. <laughs> Google Sarah Johnson. Um, you'll know. It's not me. <laughs> I'm spent. I have nothing else to say. Same. I still have the Cola Wars Wikipedia page up, so... Uh... Pepsi vs. Coke. Who's on what side? We already... <sighs> this is not fair. Vote five stars if you like Pepsi. Vote five <clears throat> stars if you like Coke. <laughs> leave a, leave no. a five-star review with your vote. That's yeah. the only way you can leave a vote. We're not going to count any vote that's not on a five-star review. Right. Sure. You do it? No, you can do it. The person who does the intro doesn't do the outro, do they? Yeah, fair enough. Do a little handoff. <laughs> All right. Um, well, that was episode 18 of the Jack Swag Collective, where... We made our way through Roland Barthes' Death of the Author. Thank you, everyone, for listening. I think it was an awesome, awesome episode. Next time, we're going to be watching a documentary called American Animals. I think we're due for a movie episode. It's been a while. Um, but in the meantime, you know, go ahead and watch that. It's, it's awesome. We've actually already seen it. Um, so cannot wait to do a discussion on it. So you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, any sort of podcast platform where, uh, you know, you butchered that any podcast platform please 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 send us an email at jacksweightcollective at gmail.com you know comments criticisms suggestions we'd love to hear from you guys and also go ahead and rate us on itunes super super helpful for us helps the podcast grow and yeah just thank you for everyone for for listening and um it's really cool to see the audience grow and we love we love making this podcast for, for the likes of ted and all of the rest of you um but i think that's it well thank you for listening and uh until next two weeks, one month, we'll see. Bye. Bye. See ya.